Hey guys, welcome back to Quite Frankly. Um, so, first of all, I just want to announce some personnel changes since last fall. Unfortunately, my former co-host, Sydney Shadell, has moved on to be the senior news editor of the DP, so she doesn't have time to spend with me working on this podcast anymore, which is very sad. But, luckily, I have a great replacement. The former editor-in-chief of the DP um, is no longer in that position, so she has time to be my new co-host. So, I want to welcome in Lauren Finer to the show. Hey, Leo. So glad to be a part of the show now. Uh, <laughs> so, um, what's it been like since you left your perch as editor-in-chief of the DP? Yeah, it's been weird. I've had a lot of free time, and it's funny because now I'll come around here for podcast meetings a couple hours a week, and people will say, like, what are you doing here? Why are you here so much when I used to spend, like, 50 hours a week here? So, that's been nice. She can't, she can't stay away. Yeah. She can't stay away from journalism. <laughs> um, so, before we get started, I actually want to give a quick shout-out to one of the DP's newest podcasts, Bottoms on Top. Um, this is a podcast hosted by John Holmes and Ian Jong. And their show is the quote-unquote place to go for queer content on campus. So check out their first episode where they interview a freshman about what it's like to be queer while entering the Penn community. And of course, check out all the DP's podcast content online at ddp.com or on iTunes. So I know it's been a while, but I want to start today's episode by looking back at the day after the election. For me, that day was tough, if not sort of surreal. As I went to classes that day, Penn's campus felt like it was in a collective state of mourning. In my first class, people were literally crying as the professor gave his lecture. And as I walked to my next class, I noticed the weather. It was dark outside at 2 in the afternoon and windy and rainy, and it was just awful. Little did I know that just a few blocks away, college junior Kai Cornegay took hold of her situation and in the process helped many students work through some of their post-election feelings. I think immediately after the election, um, I think that it was very much feeling like a like trauma. I think um, it's something that I was a little hesitant to sort of name that initially, but I think that taking space away from it, I feel comfortable naming that like the election was a traumatic experience for a lot of people. Um, I think that it was... For some people, I think it was the first time that they really felt vulnerable in their identities, but I think for a lot of people, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of reminding them that they're unsafe and vulnerable in this country. So I think keeping that all in mind, I think I didn't even have any sort of way to think about organizing around this politically or in like a broader sense. So for me, like all I could do was like, okay, let me just make sure that all of my people are like taken care of right now. Um, and I think for me, thinking about the ways in which, like, I deal with stress and trauma, a lot of times, like, I will, like, just totally forget to eat. Um, not because I'm, like, trying to, like, starve myself, but Mm -hmm. more because I'm, like, okay, let me just try and get my work done. And, like, for me, eating is, like, not high on the priority list. Um, and I also, for me personally, I don't like to be alone if I'm going through, like, really hard times. Like, I don't necessarily want to talk about what's going on, but for me personally... I prefer if I'm around other people. So I was like, okay, I can do, I can feed people and I can bring people to me and have them so that they have like a space where they can be around people that they feel comfortable with um, in a space where like I knew that I was going to be, if I needed to be, was ready and willing to be very 
like hard on what was acceptable and appropriate like language and action in my house. Um, so I was like, let me do that. I was like, I'll just like open my, my house. And it was like a very brief conversation even between me and my roommates. It was very much like, you know what, we're just gonna open up the house and we'll like make some food. And if folks come by, they do. And if not, it's not the end of the world. We'll have leftovers for tomorrow. Our university actually has a long history of creating environments where students who feel threatened can be more comfortable. This week, we're going to look at Du Bois College House as one of the earliest examples of student activism producing a friendlier environment for minority students. So let's get started by bringing in our podcast intern, Charlotte Laracy, who's done some research on the history of Du Bois. Charlotte? Du Bois College House was created in 1972, and about 90 students lived in the house, and it was made up of about one-fifth of the black undergraduate student population. Most lived there for a year or two in the freshman or sophomore year. The house started as the first two floors of a low-rise. The house tried to solve the, the double problem of making the academic transition from a high school to an elite university, a problem that every Penn student faces, but also the social transition into a predominantly white and unwelcoming environment. It was the civil rights era, and Penn had just begun to make a real push to admit more black students than ever before as a result of public scrutiny. While this meant many young African Americans were granted the opportunity of a great education, they also had to face considerable hostility from their peers. Toward the end of the 60s, a movement began to establish a college house to centralize resources for black students and establish an environment that embraced black culture. But it took a while for the idea of this house to become a reality. Every decision was highly considered, including what to call the house. Faculty director of the Du Bois College House, Reverend Will Gibson, explained why they chose Du Bois to be the namesake of the house. I think what was most impressive was actually the person for whom it was named. Mm -hmm. To know that Dr. Du Bois came to the University of Pennsylvania in the late 19th century, the first African American to ever earn a PhD from Harvard University, invited particularly to come and write about the sociological realities of black people in Philadelphia in the late 1800s, and that he is credited now really for establishing the modern field of sociology. Dr. Du Bois, like uh, former Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, like, of course, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., for uh, an African-American man like myself who was born in the late 50s, these three men were among a group that we viewed with some kind of awe. Uh, because of their intelligence, because of their grit, because of the way they define the whole country by their commitment to set of values where justice and racial equality were at the center. So the name of a college house itself lent itself to a certain kind of attractiveness to me. I talked to one of my professors, Walter Palmer, a West Philadelphia civil rights leader who was involved in the Penn community when Du Bois was first established, about the idea behind Du Bois. When Du Bois House was created, America was experiencing blacks in college, white college campuses all across the nation wanted to have a safe space, a space where they could come and be themselves and not have to have the dual consciousness, which Du Bois talked about, you know, in the early days mm -hmm. of his um, writings. and. Um, and they could be uh, 
loose and they, they could be they could say things without necessarily having every word hinge on having white affirmation and um, they could have wear their hair natural and put on African clothing and celebrate African you know um, customs and culture and music. language and music and what have you and um, so that was that was the intent it was um, not to take over a white institution, but to be able to express blackness in the midst of a white institution. The creators argued that black students could not find a sense of community within the university. According to the book, Black Students in the Ivory Tower by Wayne Glasker, the founders of Du Bois House believed that it was vital that black students, especially in their freshman year, have the alternative of discussing problems and ideas with black residence counselors, academic advisors, and peers. Uh, the person whose name is often uh, lifted up when we talk about uh, the beginning, the, 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 the spirit behind, the push behind what has now become W.B. Du Bois College House is uh, Kathy Barlow. She's an attorney now. Uh, but at that time, she was uh, preparing to go to Penn Law School. And she and a group of students felt the kind of thing you and I were talking about earlier, uh, what it felt like, what, what it felt like for black students in the University of Pennsylvania late 60s, early 70s. And when she came back for the 40th anniversary of the house, we were able to invite her. She talked a lot about that period and what it felt like for black students on this campus. There was a sense that their very being was under assault. There were these questions about do you deserve to be here? Who are you viewing black people somehow exotic in a setting mm -hmm. like the University of Pennsylvania? If they were, say, in a ghetto somewhere, well, that's, yeah, that makes sense, but you're at the University of Pennsylvania, so in some ways you're exotic. So even in efforts to affirm them, there's a sense that you are exceptional as a black person in being this place because clearly black people as a whole are not intelligent enough to be at a place like the University of Pennsylvania. I actually talked to Kathy Barlow. Although most people know that Du Bois has faced resistance, I was surprised to hear from Kathy that even the local NAACP opposed its creation at the time. The organization was known during the civil rights era for promoting solutions through integration. It's reported that they saw the idea for Du Bois to be separatist, even though it was conceived as a place where anyone with an interest in black culture could live. Reverend Gibson explained the NAACP's opposition. If you think about uh, the kinds of ways that civil rights organizations had to maneuver uh, around this very complex and very hostile kind of racial landscape when they came to be, in their own minds, this wasn't somehow a separatist move. But I think what they didn't quite understand, or they felt it wasn't prominently uh, articulated enough, was that Kathy Barlow and her peers never said that this would be, in their view, a residence just for black students. And this is where I pick up the language in describing Du Bois. It's a place for students who appreciate black culture. That could be any student. Barlow told me about how she responded to this criticism. The sound quality on this clip is pretty low, but please bear with us. At one point when I had a conversation with someone from the NAACP, I said, you know, 
I actually have the same goal you have. Mm. I have the goal that African-American students who attend the University of Pennsylvania will be able to live in an integrated world. However, the facts show me that they are not getting the benefit of attending the University of Pennsylvania. I said, I think we all can agree that matriculation at the University of Pennsylvania has the goal of eventually graduating with a degree from the University of Pennsylvania. And the facts show that that is not occurring. Working with Penn's administration and other advocates, Barlow eventually prevailed and the Du Bois College House opened in 1972, four years after Barlow's original sit-in. According to Glasker, even though students of any race were welcome to live there, for the first four years of its existence, Du Bois was entirely comprised of black residents. In 1976, the first white residents moved in, and over time, the house became far more diverse. Today, according to Reverend Gibson, the majority of Du Bois College House residents aren't black. But even if they were, this wouldn't be a problem, he explains. I'll give you uh, something that is contemporary, that black lives matter. Mm. I've seen how it makes some people, and quite frankly, white people uncomfortable, some white people. I think part of it is that whiteness itself has not been interrogated in this country. That is because whiteness is viewed as normative, as universal. But when you say something like black lives matter, then it challenges some that normativity. So I'm, I'm not suggesting, I want to be clear, that people who have some resistance to Black Lives Matter are racist. What I'm saying is it challenges them intellectually in ways they've not been challenged. And so they respond by saying, all lives matter. Well, the truth of the matter is Black Lives Matter means Black Lives Matter too. If you consider the history of this country, black lives and indigenous lives clearly have mattered less. Reverend Gibson told me about how his parents, who were civil rights activists, were denied the right to vote after marrying in Louisiana. While Gibson recognizes that race relations in the U.S. have changed since that time, he cautioned against those who assume that Penn is now a perfectly welcoming campus for black students and other marginalized groups. These questions of who deserves to be in a space like Penn does bubble up for our students. They, they tell me, they tell the house name, they tell the other senior staff, they tell the GAs. Less prevalent in some ways than in the late 60s and early 70s, but I think even more hurtful now because part of our national uh, narrative is that we've come a long way. But it's complicated because there are clear uh, markers of retrenchment around uh, racial progress as we use the language. For example, public schools are more segregated now than they were in the early 1960s. That's a tragedy, but it is a reality. Uh, you have a situation where the wealth gap between white families and black families, where it was beginning to close in the early 80s, is now widening again. So again, it's very complicated.
where we are today. So yes, we have the W.B. Du Bois College House. We have McCoo Black Student Cultural Center. Our Africana Studies Department, when I came to Penn in the, uh, 1996, it was uh, a program. So we made, we made some progress, but at the same time, these uh, what I call uh, American tropes around uh, race and anti-black sentiment, unfortunately, uh, still bedevil us. I was rewatching Mad Men recently, and in one scene, the main character, Don Draper, remarks that there's no real history in America, only a frontier. The reality is that many Americans have consistently ignored history. We keep making the same mistakes and assume that we are moving forward. Maybe it's this idea that prevents us from making actual progress. It's easy to forget or ignore the history of this country when you don't experience the effects of it every day. As a white male, I don't have to think about whether someone is looking at me in a different way because of my race, or questioning whether I belong at this school based on the color of my skin. So I can see why some people discount the notion of a safe space. People who say that safe spaces like Du Bois or Kai's post-election healing house aren't necessary because the real world is unfair don't understand that the real world is kind of their safe space. They can't even imagine what it's like to have their humanity always in question, especially at their own school. Safe spaces are sometimes portrayed as places for people who can't handle the world to be sheltered from it. The words coddle and baby come up often from critics who say that particularly college students need to learn how to face reality. This clip from South Park demonstrates the more radical side of that argument. Everyone likes me and thinks I'm great in my safe space. My safe space. People don't judge me and haters don't hate in my safe space. Your safe space. Even Obama has said that college students should not be, in his words, coddled and protected from other points of view. Dr. Palmer echoed this point. He views the current generation of college students as way too sheltered. I blame their parents, who for the most part wanted, didn't want them to experience any bad things. I mean, you have to experience life, and with life goes bad and good. I'm, I'm, I teach a course on social change. So I'm going to say to my students, as a teacher, as we go through this, and you start to examine the agency that you're doing your internship in, and you're going to be challenging them, I want you to have problems. I want them to have pushback. So why do you think I, I'm, I'm saying that? And I say the reason I'm saying it because you're not going to learn a damn thing unless you have to be forced to have to deal with how to solve a problem. Safe spaces and free speech are often seen in contradiction with each other. Critics argue that safe spaces prevent people from speaking openly and addressing their problems. But Leo actually talked to an undergraduate member of Penn's Committee on Open Expression, Ashley Marcus, who disagrees with this argument. As PC has taken on um, some momentum as being something that uh, people don't like because it inhibits their communication. Safe space has been rolled into that as something that, too, has been inhibiting communication. Mm -hmm. When, in actuality, I don't think that that's what it should be. I don't think that's what it intends to be. I think that um, it has picked up some unfortunate connotations that it doesn't deserve. Ashley went on to say that her committee works to ensure that people's voices are heard in a respectful manner. Her committee feels that free speech is about learning from one another and that goal is not accomplished without an environment of respect. 
Kai, who created the Healing House after the election, also doesn't see free speech as an opponent to safe spaces. She emphasized respect. I think a lot of the criticism about safe spaces, and in this case safer spaces, is that, um, you know, people think that um, free speech is not allowed, that's kind of the argument, mm -hmm. or, um, you know, people can't express their views. Um, what would you, how would you respond to that? And how would you say that um, what you provided, um, how would you say that was able to um, foster speech and discussion amongst people? Um, I think that, to go back to free speech particularly, I think it's important to recognize that freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of consequences for what you say. So I think that a lot of times people think that, oh, because you're protected under free speech, you can say whatever you want. And you absolutely can say whatever you want, but I think that you also need to take a step back and wonder, who am I affecting with my words? Like, what impact are my words having? Because I think that that is a weight that we oftentimes don't acknowledge and don't really spend enough time thinking about. So... I think for me, it's really important to circle back to that. And I think that a lot of times, especially when we're talking about like politics, I think it's very easy when people are defending their views, particularly if they're defending conservative views, for them to like talk about them in a much in a very detached way, as if it's detached from people's like actual bodies and lived experiences and identities. And that's often not the case for marginalized folks. Like the personal is political and the political is also personal. Um, so I think that for me it's it's reminding folks that like, even if you, ideologically speaking, you have a certain viewpoint, you have to also acknowledge the ways in which that is affecting people's actual lives. Um, and I also, and I think that like a privilege plays a big part of that too. And I mean, quite frankly, a lot of people aren't ready to have a conversation about their own privileges, but I do think that at the very least people can have, I think that most people at Penn have the wherewithal to be able to think, oh, I'm saying these things, like who are they affecting? Reverend Gibson took this idea a step further. In his view, free speech is actually freer in a safe space like Du Bois. I think that whatever the safe space is, I think whatever the group is, how, you know, in terms uh, whether it's, uh, it's uh, people of color, whether it's women, whether it's particular sexual orientation, we have to keep in mind that even in those settings, there's no monolithic thinking, that there's diversity Actually, there's more diversity in those groups than there would be outside of them. Uh, Latino communities, for example, extraordinarily diverse. And so the conversations have a particular richness. I think it's also true, for example, of Jewish communities. I think there's extraordinary diversity. So the perception is, because all of these people are of whatever category, they all think the same. So if one is opposed to safe spaces, one of the challenges is you're not open to other thoughts. Have you ever been at a black family's Thanksgiving dinner meal where Uncle Joe is railing against the current president and his niece is saying you're absolutely wrong and the aunt is saying the problem with black people is this and her sister is saying you were wrong when we were girls and you're wrong now. There's diversity <laughs> at the family table. So I think there's diversity in the safe spaces that those outside of it cannot or will not take the time to appreciate and to affirm. So one of the things I think happens is, to, to refer again to Du Bois, there's so much diversity of thought here in this house. So the suggestion that any of these places 
shut out, um, say, opposing points of views, I think on their face are basically false. Clearly, Reverend Gibson sees Du Bois as a space where students can feel comfortable in their own skin, and as one that fosters incredible conversations. But to Dr. Palmer, Du Bois residents have a greater responsibility to act outside its four walls. Du Bois would turn open his grave to know that you are not falling through on anything that he talked about. Nothing. That. Why aren't you leading the fight for certain issues, right? Now, we organized a number of them back in the 90s uh, against the bookstore because they attacked uh, a young black uh, professor here and his attack by the father and son of the, of the campus copy. And then the president met and, and we, they worked out, right? And this is led by the Boyce House, which is wonderful. But there's so, Black Lives Matter. Where's the Boyce House on Black Lives Matter? Where's the Boyce House on black women's issue? I mean, if it's a black house, Where's the Boys House on 40th and Market Street? I said that to him back in the 60s and 70s. There's 40th and Market Street right at the corner where I, I was raised, right? You have no connection, right? You'll try to settle with these white kids and make it look as if somehow because you're black you're connected. But you know like I know, you wouldn't be seen at 40th and Market Street after dark. Mm -hmm. It ain't gonna happen. It's fraudulent. Dr. Palmer is correct that over the years, Du Bois has at times functioned as a center point for activism at Penn. But today, with the prevalence of so many activist groups and cultural centers, the need for Du Bois to be both a residence and an activist hub isn't quite as necessary. And that's not to say it doesn't serve as a place for activism and social change at times. Plus, many Du Bois residents participate in activism in the Penn community. But over 40 years since its founding, the primary function of Du Bois for many is a place to come home, to hang out with friends, to just live. To illustrate this, we're going to close out this episode by listening to the president of Du Bois College House and Wharton Senior, Jordan Palmer, talking about what makes Du Bois special to him. What do you get out of Du Bois as a safe space uh, that you don't get out of other spaces on campus? Um, well, just kind of knowing a lot of the history of Du Bois, as well as the fact that it's an actual place where I live, where I sleep, you know, I wake up there, it's just, that kind of helps, and it's that home aspect, like, it's a home away from home, I know what it's like to wake up back at home in Maryland, when it's a place I love with my family, and I can almost say it's the same, it being in Du Bois, uh, you know, my roommates are guys that I've really become close with, that I know, I have a lot of friends on my hall within the building, and being the president of Du Bois, I've gotten a chance to meet a lot of other people, so just kind of that feel has just kind of just permeated throughout, and it really makes the experience rewarding. This episode was produced by Joyce Varma and edited and hosted by Lauren Feiner and me, Leopold Spongeller. Special thanks to Charlotte Laracy for her work on this episode. Our music was composed by Andrew Ellis. Quite frankly, it was presented by The Daily Pennsylvanian. Thanks for listening and look out for our next episode.